it reminds me in the same vein as like when the reverend mother is talking and is like you know you are strong paul i hope you live Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Other Brothers Podcast, the show where two best friends give their thoughts and opinions on any and all consumable content out there in the world. I'm John. And I'm Colin, and we are your hosts. So today we're talking about a movie that I think, Colin, you're probably really excited for. So why don't you tell us what we're talking about? I'm very excited to talk about this. We are talking about Dune. The the new Dune, not not the older one. The yeah, no. Dune twenty twenty one. Dune Part One that came <laughs> yeah, out. Dune Part One that came out very recently. Yeah. So, Colin, give us your summary. What's your one sentence non spoiler summary of Dune Part One? Space politics and drugs drive a man. Drive a man. <laughs> That's it. No, drive drive a man. Part One. <laughs> drive a man. Okay. Perfect. I'm going to, for my one sentence summary, I'm just going to take a quote from another very famous movie. And that quote is, I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, um, man, I love Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> no, but honestly, I was thinking about it. And, you know, Anakin Skywalker and Paul Atreides are very, very similar people. They're both angsty teens. They both don't like sand. I guess the biggest difference between them is Paul Atreides, at least in Dune Part 1, did not cause mass murder of many, many children. I feel like he doesn't mind the sand as much, though. <laughs> That's true. I feel like true. there's a slight, slightly more disdain coming from Anakin. I, well, there, everything has more disdain coming from Anakin. Yeah. To be fair. Anyway. That's beside the point, because we're not talking about Attack of the Clones. We're talking about Dune. And just like every week, if you have not seen Dune Part 1, or if you haven't read the book, because yes, Dune is a book also. If you have not seen the movie, though, there will be spoilers from this point on. So either go watch the movie now or enjoy the spoilers. So what were your initial thoughts on Dune Part 1, Colin? I loved it. This might be one of my new favorite movies. I don't know if it's in my top three favorite movies of all time, because that's a very specific list. But as far as favorite movies, this one's up there. Okay, very cool. That's awesome. What about you, John? What, what do you think? I also really liked it. So I saw this movie twice. I saw it on opening weekend, and I also saw it, I think, about a week later. But here's a situation I was in when I saw it opening weekend. So I had been reading Dune and the movie had come out and I knew that we wanted to talk about it. And initially we had both anticipated talking about this movie like three weeks ago at this point and we just have not had the chance. So here we are talking about it now. So I had more time than I actually needed to read, but I like binge read this book and literally up to about five minutes before the movie started, I was reading this book to get to the end of where Dune part one ends. And and this book is not an easy read. Yeah, so I probably ingested about 200 pages of Dune right oh. before seeing Dune Part 1. Perfect. So I went in, I was already mentally exhausted from reading Dune, and then I sat through the two and a half hour movie that is Dune. And Yeah, it is not an easy movie to watch. It is probably just as complex to watch as it is to read. Oh, for sure. So the first time I watched it, I really was not a fan. Really? 
And that is, I think, because I was so in the mindset of the book that every little thing that was different bothered me. Even though like movies okay. and books aren't verbatim because you can't do that. You wouldn't have enough time in a movie ever to do that with a book. Like things are going to change a little bit just because that's how movies work and it doesn't have to be exactly the same. But between that and like I was just, I think, so mentally drained from reading that much. I did not like it the first time I saw it. Not, I didn't think okay. it was bad. I thought it was well done. I just didn't enjoy it. So I knew going in the second time that I wanted to give it a second chance because I was like, I think I was too too focused on book. So I gave it the week off. I didn't think about doing it all for a week. And I went in the second time and I saw it again and I liked it so much more the second time. I thought it was so much better the second time I saw it. And I think part of that is because it is such a heavy movie. Watching it that second time just helps you kind of ingest it all and notice things that maybe you missed the first time. And through that, it really helped me appreciate it more. I would compare watching this movie to watching something like Cloud Atlas. Okay. You know, it's a complex kind of movie to watch, but, you know, with, with so much going on, there's so many things to pay attention to that if you fall behind or you don't pick up on what's really happening story-wise, you're going to be lost. Yeah. So after reading Dune and then going in to watch it, even though it is a movie version, it's still complex. So I can I completely understand that. That makes sense. Yeah. But what about you? What did you think of just initial thoughts seeing the movie? Like So like I said, I, I loved it. The one thing that really struck a chord with me was the audio. So I saw this movie twice too. And the first time I saw it was in, I think, opening day or like day after opening day. And I saw it at an XD theater, one of those like super surround sound, like okay. really high quality audio theaters. Yeah. And prior to seeing this movie, over the summer, I actually read Dune uh, start to finish. So I had time to process it and think about it before actually going in and seeing the movie. And I think that was the biggest difference between like what we were just talking about with how you went to go see the movie. Yeah, definitely. And going into this movie, I was familiar with the director who directed one of my other favorite sci-fi movies, Blade Runner 2049. I think that's one of the most stunning looking films. While, while the film definitely has its issues, I think he took what he learned making Blade Runner 2049 and translated that into things that worked better in Dune. Okay, cool. And then I went and saw Dune a second time because one, I wanted to take notes and two, I really wanted part two to come out because one of the things that was going on with this movie was that they did not greenlight part two until a few weeks afterward because they wanted to see what the reaction was going to be like, because this is a remake of a film of a book that was made in what the 60s the book was made in the 60s the original film was made in the 80s and it was not very successful yeah Yeah. so dune as a property definitely has its issues so the studio didn't necessarily want to bankroll the next film and potentially trilogy so yeah i i really wanted part two to happen so i decided to throw what money i had into seeing this movie twice that's awesome yeah you mentioned you liked the sound quality of this movie and the first note that I wrote down was literally excellent sound design from the very beginning. Oh, the, like the sound and the VFX in this movie are yeah. top of the line. They are spectacular. Mm-hmm. But like even just from the very opening, like before anything happens, before they even show the the dreams are messages from the deep quote at the beginning, just like literally they're still showing like the companies, but it's like the sound design with it. It's like this spooky, ominous, like creaky, weird noise 
And it just really sets the tone for the movie. It like really puts you in a mindset of, ooh, this is kind of spooky to start, which is actually really cool to me. And I like that about just the beginning alone. And then we get to that dream quote. And I think that that's a really cool way to start it, just with a quote on the screen, just to read about dreams that are messages from the deep, because that's literally kind of the tone of this entire movie in some way, which is really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. So after that quote, we get... What brief little bit of Zendaya in this movie we get. Yeah, a little bit of Zendaya <laughs> here and there throughout the whole thing, but just little snippets. I'm excited Which to see. Which I think is a little bit, I think it's a little bit misleading for how much she was featured in the marketing for this movie. Yeah. But I think with how this movie, and especially with how Dune as a story is told, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think it really works. I think it's great. So... One of the notes that I had written later on in my notes, but it, we'll talk about it now because it fits, is I thought they were really smart about how they introduced the world and all the political issues that were going on and using Zendaya, who plays Chani, as the narrator for all of that. I thought that it did work really well. And knowing that Zendaya played Chani in this movie, after reading up to that point in the book, I figured out that that's who Zendaya was playing. I was really intrigued to see how they were going to incorporate her throughout the first movie because in the book Chani doesn't appear until like literally the end of the movie. So John, let, let's talk about that real quick. I finished the book this summer and you read up to where? I read up to literally right where this movie ends. That's where I and stopped. In the book, all throughout the different chapters that are starting, you get little quotes from books that have happened in the future yes. or journals and things like that. And instead of having those little quotes popping up on the screen or somebody saying them, I think Zendaya popping up in those little bits just hints at that. Yeah. And I think it was a very good translation of book to movie, having to change mediums and having to change how the story is told. Yeah, I think it's a very nice ode to how the book is presented. It's kind of really cool. I didn't even think about it like that, but that's actually a really cool thought. I really like that that's kind of how you took that, because I didn't think about it that way at all. I just thought about her narrating, but that's a cooler way to think about it, and I like that, so that makes me happy. Yeah. yeah. Another just overall general note that I have is I thought that they did do a very good job of keeping true to the book. I thought it was a very oh, good job in comparison. they did a fantastic comparison. job at that. And yes, there are a few changes here and there, but like I said, there's always going to be. I think overall, though, they kept true to the story very well. I only have one critique between the movie that we got and the book. Okay. I have a few, and I think we'll, that's just because we'll it was fresher in my mind, so that's okay. And the only like other general note, other than, other than the VFX and the sound that I have, is the spaceships. I think the spaceships look so cool in this movie i think i wrote it two different times maybe a third <laughs> okay. but i i wrote i love the spaceships awesome. like these ships look incredible they did yeah. a fantastic job with it and that in, and that includes like the all of the vehicle space sand flying random things that exist in this movie mm -hmm. like the ornithopters like exactly what i imagined they would look like while reading yeah literally that's also what i said i said they look exactly how i thought they would now dragonfly wings i wasn't expecting but i kind of get it and it makes a lot of sense that's not how i visualized them functioning but the visual of what they looked like was very much how i thought they would look yeah so uh, let's get into where this movie starts then okay and we'll kind of breeze through this we're gonna go much faster through the movie than we normally would 
because this movie is two and a half hours long. It's a long. long movie. So yeah, we're going to just kind of go. I'm going to go based on my notes. You'll go based on your notes and we'll see where that lands us. Yep. So at the beginning of this movie, we get a scene where Paul is having breakfast with his mom and he asks her to pass him some water. And she says to make her do it. She says, use the voice. And Paul's mom is what they call in this book a Bene Gesserit. And that is like a, it's like a breed of people who were like born to be essentially witches in a sense and have these powers to just help leaders rule by being able to like get people to do whatever they wanted them to essentially. Whether that be through what is called the voice, which is kind of a mind control kind of thing. Or a playing on people's emotions and kind of feeding secrets and manipulating people to do what they want them to do, maybe without them knowing it. Yeah. There are a whole lot of world building things going on in this book. So if it's confusing hearing that in this podcast, if we tried explaining it, it would probably take us three or four hours. Yeah. Which is why for this podcast episode especially, it would make a lot of sense to go watch this movie first. Yeah. (laughs) Just so you can kind of be along for the ride and not be super confused. But anyway, Paul's mom tells Paul to use the voice because normally Bene Gesserit's are women, but Paul's mom has been training him in the ways of the Bene Gesserit anyway. So he knows little bits and pieces here and there of how to do some of those things, like use the voice. He's not very good at it. He's still in training, but she tries to get him to do it. And the way that they presented the voice in this movie was so much scarier than I ever thought it would be. I knew that it was an intimidating thing, but I didn't realize just how forceful it was. And what they decided to do with the audio, especially around the voice, was almost something like you'd hear out of like a horror movie, where everything cuts down low. I wasn't sure if it was going to be like a bunch of overlapping audio files or or how they created the voice, but the voice manipulation that they do around Paul and Jessica when this is happening is really defined, and I like that. Because what they could have easily done with the voice is just have it be a normal speaking voice and then somebody does something, which would have been confusing. Mm-hmm. So have it being this scary sound is perfect. Oh, I think it's awesome. I really do like that about it. So the next note that I have after the one about the voice is about Duncan Idaho in this movie. This is more of a question. When you Mm -hmm. were reading the book, how important did you feel that Duncan Idaho was to Paul just as a character and as in his relationship to Paul? Because I thought that they presented their relationship as way more important in the movie than I took it as when I was reading the book. And I don't know if that's because I just missed something or if I didn't understand that, but... No, I agree with that. I thought... Paul's relationship with Duncan Idaho was definitely focused on more in this movie. Whereas in the book, he has kind of a like balanced relationship with hot and Halleck. Yeah. No. Yeah. I agree with that. And we'll get, I'll get more into the whole Hawat and Halleck notes that I have in a minute. But another note on Idaho that I had is, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the movie, his facial hair changes three times in the first three scenes that we see him. Does it really? I was And I just think it's funny because <laughs> I don't really understand why that happened. In the first, and it gets shorter every time. In the first scene, he has a full-on beard. In the second scene, he's got like shorter beard, but not as much beard. And in the last scene, in the third scene, and from then on, he has nothing. And I'm like, why? Interesting. Was that directorial choice? I mean, it might it might be to show passage of time. 
But wouldn't that happen the other way to show passage of time? I mean, yeah. That's why Um, I was confused by it. Also, I'm just kind of guessing. Yeah, I don't. Also, that's, I think, the first time I've ever seen Jason Momoa without a beard, and it was just strange to me. (laughs) That's all. That's just my, I was just confused, but it doesn't really affect the movie at all. Yeah. We then get a scene where Paul is talking to his dad, Duke Leto, trying to get an understanding of where they sit in the world, why they are going to Arrakis, and and why all this stuff is going on. And in this scene, Leto shows just how great of a dad he is. Like, like that really took me back because Leto in the book really felt like just a very smart and caring person. And I thought his adaptation into the movie was perfect. Leto in the book, I felt was at least outwardly a lot less focused on Paul than he was in the movie. But I didn't dislike that about the movie. I thought it was kind of cool that they showed more of the relationship between Leto and Paul than they really like dig into in the book. Just because I feel like there were more, like, actual conversations between the two of them in the movie. Yeah. So that being said, during this scene, when Leto is trying to explain why he thinks they're going to be okay on Arrakis, he says that they're going to try and harvest desert power. Mm -hmm. And even when I was reading the book, that sounded cheesy, but hearing, like, that line in this movie with the high budget and the actors that were in it, it still felt just as cheesy. Oh, yeah. It but it, it works. Oh, it's amazing. Just, <laughs> we're going to harvest desert power. Yeah. And he says it with so much confidence. Okay. He's like, desert power. And I'm like, yeah, okay, just, all right. No matter how cool you try and make that sound, <laughs> you still sound like a dad with flip flops sitting out on the patio flipping burgers. Like, yeah. it's just. <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we get a scene where we get to see Fufur Hawat and Gurney Halleck. Like, side by side. I don't remember exactly what the scene is, but all I wrote down when I saw it was, when I was reading the book, when I pictured Hawat and Halleck, I honestly, I imagined them literally as exact opposites of what they were cast as in this movie. That's so funny. (laughs) Like, I imagined Hawat being, like, this big, buff, scary guy. And Halleck, I imagined him being, like, older at this point and a little bit on the bigger side, especially because he's always playing his whatever instrument he has. So I was like, oh, he's probably not the super fit one. But in the movie, it was literally the opposite. Yeah. I'm also a little bummed that they did not include Hollick's music in the movie. Yes. That's one of the downsides, I feel like. And that was one of the biggest things that I took away from this movie as a bigger negative and what I was talking about earlier. I mean, there's one other scene that I was hoping would happen that didn't. But I think we'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. Okay. But yeah, no, missing out on his songs and the little bits of poetry that you get from him Mm -hmm. in the book versus in the movie, uh, it kind of takes a little bit away. But I think we're going to get some sort of extended director's cut because according to Jason Momoa, there is a six hour version of this movie. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Wow. Um yeah, we're, we're going to fly through this plot real quick. We get a really cool fight practice thing where Halleck comes to train with Paul and they start to use shields and practice with these swords because guns are no longer a thing. So sword fight is a thing and shields, nothing fast can go through them, but slow things can. So it changes up the dynamics of a fight. And this is one of the things that really made me realize just how good the sound quality was in this movie. They cut all music. And they let the sounds of the fight be the beat, the cadence, and the soundtrack 
for this whole thing. And I thought that that was incredible. Yeah, no. I just thought that the fight scenes in this movie were really cool. I thought the use of the shields was really interesting. And like just how they portrayed it and actually showed it was really, really cool. Because you can talk about it all day in a book, but like being able to see that and how the shield envelops them, but then like almost disappears until something comes in contact with it again. I thought that was a really cool way to show them. And where the Dune movie that was made in the 70s had to hand animate all of the shield stuff so it didn't look great. The technology is finally there that you can really pull off a story like Dune. Yeah. We then get the scene with the Reverend Mother who is like one of the leaders of the Bene Gesserit, and she comes because she is going to test Paul. And she is absolutely terrifying. Oh, she's the scariest person in this entire movie. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> Forget the Baron. She's scarier than he is in my mind. <laughs> the Baron's just really fun to watch with how evil he is. She is just scary. Like, yeah. just straight up scary. I thought that the scene between her and Paul was done almost perfectly. I really do. Oh, that was book to movie, beat for beat. Yeah. Perfect. It was incredible. Even with Jessica outside saying the fear is the mind killer quote, everything was perfect. The only thing that I wish that they could have portrayed, I don't know how they would have done it. I think they did a great job, but I, in my mind, I'm like, I wish that they could have shown the pain that Paul was in better. I don't know how they would have shown Mm. that pain better but the book does such a good job of just describing it in words yeah and it like really makes you feel it whereas here like you can see his face and you kind of see the agony on it but there's only so much you can do with that and then they like cut to a scene of a hand that is charred and like burned and that kind of gives the impression of the pain that he's in but I wish yeah, it, it's much more visceral in the book. Yes. Just because of how you can experience it in your mind mm-hmm. versus watching somebody yeah, else yeah. experience it. So that's not like a knock against it. Cause I don't think I could have come up with anything better. That's just me wishing for more of that visceral reaction in my own body from it. So I have nothing against that. I think that scene is incredible. Yeah. You brought up Jessica and how she's outside during the scene and she is saying her like mantra to stay focused and not let fear control her and all of that stuff. I think that her doing that is really good and that's a very nice comparison to the book. One thing that I thought was weird about Jessica in the movie compared to the book is I felt like she gets visibly upset a lot in the movie. At least for me, the book did not lead me to think that she would visibly show her upsetness as much as she does in this movie. So I was going back and forth on this a little bit, and I watched a commentary on Blade Runner 2049, and one of the major problems that you had with that movie is people are going through these big emotional moments, but because they're internalizing what's going on and focused on not portraying that out to the outside world, you have a really hard time connecting with that character. In a book, you can say that somebody stayed stone-faced while on the inside they were destroyed, But it's a lot harder to portray that dual conflicting emotion on screen, you know, rather than in a book. So having Jessica show that she's upset really helps understand that she is upset. And I think they do a good job at allowing her to be upset in areas that her character is alone. Because, of course, her character is showing just how powerful she is and where she's at as a figurehead. But when she's alone, she emotes. Yeah, that's fair. I guess that's true. I guess just in my mind, after reading it, I was like, Jessica's like this stone-faced, badass, stable character to everyone. 
and that like included me in that but like because it is a movie we can see her when she's alone and i think that your explanation on that kind of helps me be more okay with it honestly (laughs) it it was definitely something i had to get used to too yeah that is a fair enough it's a translation between medium of book to movie I know my next note is about the voice and I, we just talked about it, but like the Reverend mother using the voice, I think is like the scariest moment of the voice. My note says when Reverend mother does it to make Paul come to her. Oof. I just wrote oof because I was like, ah, when I watched it, <laughs> <laughs> it's very direct. And I think it is definitely scary. I don't think it's the scariest use of the voice. though. I think it's a good example of how powerful the voice is, but we'll get to the scariest use of the voice later. So one of the things that I really love about the movie is how well it shows the difference between Caladan and Arrakis and how lush and green Caladan is. And there's a really cool scene of Paul walking down a hillside and he puts his hand in the water and you kind of get the sense of, oh, this is the last time we're going to see green in this movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just a really nice planet. And then you go to Arrakis. Then you go to Arrakis. Then we get Hans Zimmer showing off. And by showing off, I mean possibly giving one of his best scores of all time. (laughs) And I wrote the note, hell yeah, space bagpipes. Because the Arrakis (laughs) theme when they land on Arrakis is amazing. I love it. And I honestly have been listening to it. I love it. It is incredible. Oh, it is. It's awesome. I just... Space bagpipes was never something that popped in my mind, but I like it. That's a very, it's, it's, you're not wrong. It's true. It really yeah. is. Well, they're awesome. playing bagpipes and all the different troop transports are dropping off these people. And kind of like that note that I said at the beginning of me loving the spaceships, they do a really good job at just showing how big these ships and things are. Because oh in any time that you get a, a scene showing, you know, a ship landing or a troop carrier, or even one of the spice harvesters, you always get a person next to it or something Mm -hmm. that you can judge the scale to it. And you get a real sense of scale for just how massive these things are. And so the other thing that they do a really good job of, and we talked about how this movie is hard to digest in the same way that the book is hard to digest. You have the Atreides family going to Arrakis because the emperor sent them there and takes the Harkonnens away from Arrakis making them bad and making the Baron who's in charge of the Harkonnen family, you know, obviously upset. And you have all of these different plot lines going on and all of these different characters having completely different motivations. And for such a complex story, they did a beautiful job translating it. Yeah, they did because you don't lose any of that. And with what I was saying about all these different storylines going on, we're introduced to the Fremen who are in the city, in the Atreides city, and they see Paul and they start calling him Lisan al-Gaib, which they believe he is their savior in their culture. And we find out that this culture was kind of set in motion by the Bene Gesserit through several different reverend mothers and stories and plans all set. That way they can have an easy transition into this planet. But we start to kind of get the idea that Paul might actually be this person who they think he is and will lead the Fremen into their new revolution. And it's kind of left ambiguous whether that was right or Paul actually is the savior character. Yeah, I think they did a good job of doing that, but like in a subtle enough way. Because 
they didn't really make a super big deal about it in the book either at first. Like, it was mentioned that they were saying that in the street about him, but it wasn't, like, the main focal point of what was going on. And I think they did a good job of doing that in the movie as well. Like, they definitely made it heard and noticed, but they didn't try and define what that meant right away. They were just like, Mm -hmm. what are they calling me? And that was about it. But I think that seeing the different moments that Paul presents himself as that prophet, as that Lisan al-Ghaib, especially in front of different Fremen people, one of which we'll talk about soon. But just seeing Paul and the way that he just naturally knows things, he just has that like intuition about him, about Fremen culture that he probably shouldn't. And that's kind of what like spooks the Fremen into thinking, what if he's this prophet? And with how the Bene Gesserit set him up, he wouldn't have had to know those things in order to really fill that role. But the fact that he does kind of on his own accord, just kind of already knowing yeah, really makes it ambiguous for us, the viewer or us, the reader as to if he actually is this character or not. From here, then we are introduced to the Harkonnens who are very mad about losing their planet and we get to meet the Baron. Yeah, we do. And he looks just like I thought, (laughs) with all these other characters that really fit who they are book to movie translation, the Baron might be the best translation between what's written and what's shown. Yeah, the Baron is so gross. Oh, I don't even know how else to describe him aside from evil and gross, because he is those two things. (laughs) And that's about it. But yeah, he's just this big and by big, I don't mean muscly, just big. Yeah terrifying mass of a being from here we go back to arrakis where there's an assassination attempt on paul with a hunter seeker oh yeah oh man and in in the book it was a very tense scene but in the movie it's right in the middle of paul watching this about arrakis hologram movie tape thing yeah where it's just a bunch of lessons and and it shows up in this projection And I wrote the note, they're just showing off, because at this point, there are so many different small VFX things that are happening, especially when Paul backs up through this hologram, that it just, it was so impressive, Mm -hmm. and it looked amazing, and it was heart-stopping, because the hunter-seeker goes off of sound, and being in that surround sound theater, it was quiet, it was dead silent, and (laughs) it was amazing. The book does such a good job of making you so tense when the hunter-seeker moment is happening, but the movie does a really, really good job of it too, visually, because that hologram's there, and what Paul does is he moves inside the hologram, essentially, but the hunter-seeker, like, goes right up to Paul's face. It doesn't attack him because he's not making noise, but it literally comes up to, like, his eyeball, and I'm like, oh my god. That is so much closer than I envisioned in my mind when I was reading this book, and I was like, ah, and then... Paul's got mad reflexes. Like, <laughs> yeah, he does. So Mapes, who is one of the Fremen workers that works for the Atreides family, opens the door to get Paul. And because the Hunter Seeker is attracted to whatever sound is being made when the door opens, it directs its attack toward the door and to Mapes. And Paul just snatches it out of the air and crushes it in his hand like it's no big deal. He's like, yeah, I got it. And in the book, they take a long time once this happens to like figure out where it came from and who could have placed this. And I think they do a really good job in the movie of simplifying that without detracting from the story. Because it crushes the Hunter Seeker and they're like, okay, we found this guy in the walls. He's been there for two weeks. He must have planted the Hunter Seeker, blah, 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 blah. 
And I think that that kind of closes that up very nicely for doing it quickly. So I didn't mind that at all. It also goes to show just how determined the Harkonnens are to destroy the Atreides family and the Atreides control of Arrakis. Yeah. In our next scene, we meet one of my favorite characters from the book, Kynes. And in the movie, she goes by Light Kynes because in the book, Kynes is referred to as either Kynes or as Light, depending on the setting. In the movie, they just kind of give her both names. In the book, is Kynes a man? Yeah, I was going to say, the gender swap really works, though. It did. It did. That's, I just, like, in my mind, watching the movie, I was like... It took me until watching the movie the second time to, like, really think about it. Because the first time I saw it, I was like... Yeah, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it was a girl. And That's then watching what I, it the second yeah. time, I was like, mm, no, I remember yeah. that being a guy. 100%. I was the same way. I was like, was Kynes always a woman? Yeah. And I think what really helps that not feel like a bad change is the fact that there's nothing necessarily gender specific about their character. Not at all. But with how this book was written, there are so many different prominent male characters that having some prominent female characters... Honestly, it feels nice to kind of just balance it out. Oh, it really does. I did not mind the choice at all. And Sharon Duncan Brewster did a fantastic job at capturing like kinds. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. I think Sharon Duncan Brewster did a really good job. And actually, I was just looking at an article about why they decided to make Kynes a woman in the movie. And really, all it had to do with was the fact that they went into the book and they weren't so much focused on capturing the fact that Kynes was male, but more just capturing the essence of the character and what Kynes meant to the story. And she did a fantastic job at it. She did such a good job at it. The only thing that bugs me, and this is what I was talking about earlier, there's a scene in the book of a dinner party, and it is not in the movie. And at this dinner party, you get a really good sense as to how Light Kynes thinks about the Duke, Paul, and how the general society works within this hierarchy. We get a couple details of the Fremen way of life where they pour water out to show their respect for everybody else. And the interactions between the Duke, who's trying to get on Lightkind's good side and the Fremen's good side, and how Lightkind's interprets how the Duke acts in these moments, really kind of sets up Paul to be protected and involved with the Fremen down the line. Yeah. And I'm sad that that scene was cut from the movie. Because that's a really great scene to show who Light Kinds is as a character. I agree. And one of my biggest critiques on this movie, and it's not really like a big, big critique. It's just this, this movie is a challenge to make yeah. and make it well. Because the book is so geared in on the thoughts of each character. There is so much time yes. where you are just in the head of each character and... The book does such a good job of portraying that by just like using italics to show when it's thoughts versus when it's something that is outward for other people to see. You can't italicize a movie, so it doesn't work like that to see a person's (laughs) thoughts. So one of the things that I struggled with throughout this movie, not just with kinds, but just in general, was seeing those thoughts come to life in the movie. And I think the movie overall did a good job at that as best as it could. But there were some moments like with Kynes and seeing how Kynes felt about the Duke in different moments and whether Kynes was really on the Duke's side. Because in the book, we kind of see like by the end of this next scene we're going to talk about, Kynes really is like, I think I like the Duke. 
And you don't necessarily get that feel in the movie right away. You definitely get it like later on in the movie when Kynes reappears. But in this scene, I don't really necessarily feel that. I think they do a good job of showing the Duke really trying and showing the Duke's personality in the scene where they go and see the spice collector with how he goes about trying to save the people on the crawler and all of that. You know, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. happens directly next. Yeah. There is a moment in that scene, though, where Paul is putting on a still suit, which is a suit designed to conserve as much body water as possible because water on Arrakis is the most valuable resource, even more valuable than the spice. And these still suits are designed so that you only lose a thimble of water, including sweat or whatever perspiration loss of water your body would have. The suit recycles it and your movements power it. So it's a really amazing piece of technology. And it's also something exclusive to Arrakis. And Paul puts it on perfectly. He even does things a Fremen would do that wouldn't necessarily be a known thing to do when you're putting on a still suit. So Paul doing that and his line of, oh, it just kind of felt like the right thing to do, really goes into that, was Paul actually, or is Paul actually, this savior character? Or is it just something that the Bene Gesserit set up for him in their planning of the future? And it's just a, a really small detail but does such a good job at at selling that. Oh, I love it. From there, then, we hand over to the crawler that is picking up Spice. And I don't think we actually explained what Spice is or why Arrakis is as important of a planet as it is. No, we have not. Would you like to do that? So Dune takes place in the far, far future. And one of the things that the humans had to figure out was how to travel through space and how to travel through space fast. And one way to travel to or through a place and navigate through the stars and solar system and galaxy and all that other stuff is to know where you're going and knowing what's in front of you. If you're traveling at the speed of light, you can't tell that though. But the spice is a hallucinogenic drug that warps your brain and allows you to see into the future. So the pilots of these spaceships that navigate between the planets will use the spice to travel. That way they can warp their brains around space and time and not crash. Arrakis is the only place to find the spice, though. And the spice is only found in the desert parts of Arrakis. Now, Arrakis is mostly desert because it has not been terraformed. In these giant dunes that make up Arrakis are sandworms. And these sandworms produce spice. Yeah, and one thing that they refer to these worms as, the Fremen specifically, they refer to them as the makers. And because that is in the reference to the spice. That is in reference yeah. to making the spice. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your words there. <laughs> no, that's okay. So spice is really important. And a lot of people, um, especially like on Arrakis, just enjoy consuming the spice to consume the spice. Not even for that travel. It's almost yeah, like it's just it's, a it's, it is drug. just a drug. And one of the distinct characteristics of the Fremen is they don't have whites of their eyes. Instead, the parts that would be whites of their eyes are blue. And that is because of such a high amount of spice intake. It has literally changed that part of their bodies. Yeah, the Fremen have been on Arrakis for a very long time. And they have lived in the desert alongside these worms and understand how to survive and how to live on Arrakis. Yeah, and worms are scary. You do not want to make a worm mad. No, you will not win. Worms are large and have lots of scary sharp teeth. As we find out, because there is a gigantic worm coming right toward the sand crawler that the Duke, Paul, Leto, and Halleck? Yes, sir, Halleck. 
Paul, the Duke, Kynes, and Gurney Holic are in an ornithopter together. And they are all going because the Duke just wanted to see one of these spice collectors because they're new to Arrakis and they haven't seen them yet. So they're all going. And out in the distance, Holic points and he's like, there's a dust cloud over there. And kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, that's the collector. So they finally see this collector and it's just milling up the sand and getting spice out of the sand because that is just where the spice is located. And as they're looking at that, the Duke sees way far in the distance, he sees this dust cloud of something coming toward the collector. And he's like, is that a worm? And Kynes pulls out like binoculars and uses them to see what it might be. And lo and behold, it is a worm. And so... The Duke, with his real good keen eyesight, is the first one to spot this worm way off in the distance. But the crazy thing is you don't even see that it's a worm. You just see this wave of sand moving. Yeah. And and you can tell whatever is moving the sand is massive. Yeah, it's huge. So the worm coming toward this crawler kind of causes almost an evacuation in a sense where they need to call in a carrier to come and grab the crawler and all the crew that is on the crawler, that way they can get to safety. Because worms are common, so they're always prepared for them. To- yeah, and because of how much money the spice is worth, they will mine up to the very last second. Yes, they will. So the carrier appears, it lands on top of the crawler, and how the carriers work is they have these giant arms that come out and grab the crawler and just lift it out of the sand. So you can imagine how big these carriers and these crawlers are. Oh, it's almost like an office building moving through the air. Yeah. It's crazy. But what happens is one of the arms on the carrier does not function. So they cannot lift the crawler out of the sand. What's different about that than the book is that in the book, the carrier just doesn't appear. I I remember there being somewhat of a difference, but I I didn't. It'd been so long since I'd read it to seeing it that I didn't really think about it. But I kind of like the difference. I kind of like the carrier actually being there. It makes it it more suspenseful. It adds to that what's going to happen kind of feel. So the carrier flies away because it can't do anything. And the Duke is like, how many people are on board that crawler? And it's like 21 or something, right? It's a large amount. It's a lot of people. people. It's more people than the ships can carry. Yes. And so in terms of the ships that are there that can carry is there are literally just three ornithopters and that's it. There's the one that the Duke, Paul, Gurney Hollick, and Kynes is in. And there's two other ones kind of as like a general escort to the Duke. And... The Duke's like, all right, we're going to make it happen. We're going to get everybody out of here. So they radio that down to the crawler. They land the thopters on the sand and Paul gets off and he's like telling people where to go. And in the midst of all this, Paul does not have like his face cover shield thing over his mouth like he probably should because nope, the desert and sand. But also, since they're right near a crawler that has been mining up spice, there is a ton of spice in the air. And we already talked about how spice is this hallucinogenic drug, and Paul is just breathing this in. And some people are more sensitive to spice than other people. Apparently, Paul's very sensitive to spice. Oh, he is susceptible. Mm-hmm. He, he has a very low tolerance. Yeah, he is a lightweight <laughs> when it comes to spice. Granted, he has never experienced it before, so... And now he's getting it direct, full, like, full-blown in the air all around him, inhaling it, breathing it, existing in it. But what happens to Paul in these spice-filled moments, I think, is different than what happens to most people when they interact with spice. And he has these, like, vivid dreams. And yes, they're, like, kind of hallucinogenic, but there are these vivid visions and dreams, and they're of this girl. 
you can kind of guess who that girl is because we've talked about Zendaya earlier. Um, but there's these visions of this girl that he doesn't know, but she's leading him to these different places and guiding him through different parts of what we can only assume to be Arrakis in these dreams because it's this desert looking place. So they kind of tune you into the fact that it might be Arrakis from very early on. But it puts him in this trance-like state where he literally does not move. He ends up going right up to the side of this crawler and just kneeling in front of it and like speaking just these words that are coming to his mind. And we get visions of a knife, a bloody hand, his mom being pregnant and actually having a daughter, the Freeman being absolute warm, hungry people underneath the Atreides flag and all of these visions, honestly horrifying. And well, not not necessarily his mom having a daughter, but all of these things, such as the Fremen working underneath him and leading this galaxy conquering conquest of, of murder and, and everything really puts Paul it stops him completely. He is yeah. unable to move, and it just shocks him to his core. Mm-hmm. Luckily, he gets saved by Gurney Hollock, who comes out of the ornithopter and grabs him, and they try and get back on it. And this worm, remember, there's a worm, and it's coming for him. It's, like, right there. The ground is starting to shake so, and, like, vibrate and change its form underneath the sand. There it's is crazy. a phenomenon. There's a phenomenon with sand where if you pump hot air into sand, It acts like a liquid. Yeah. Uh, There's a scientific word for it that I completely forget what it is, but they visually show that phenomenon perfectly. Yeah, it's crazy. And they make it back to the ornithopter and just as they do, the entire crawler just sinks into this giant opening in the ground. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's a big hole. This hole that I initially thought was just a big hole was not a hole. It was the worm's mouth. So it's huge. Because it envelops what we already described as an office building that moves. It just devours it. So you can imagine how big this worm is. They get away, though. They make it back onto the thopter. They get back to the city, and everyone's okay. They saved all the people, too, which is awesome. So points for the and that's where, And that's where Lightkinds really goes, okay, Atreides and the Duke might actually be good people. Yeah. Because Lightkinds, as instructed by the Emperor isn't supposed to really interfere with any politics going on in the world. Lightkinds is there to study the life and nature of Arrakis. And I don't know if we really explain the fact that she works for the Emperor. She associates with the Fremen sometimes, but is not supposed to really take the side of the Fremen either. She is really the planetologist of the Emperor. Yes. But she also has her own opinions. So... After this scene with where we get to meet a worm and, and see the total destruction that they can cause, jumping far forward into the movie, we are at night in the Atreides house when suddenly there, there's a sound of distress. And the Duke wakes up and he goes to investigate what's going on and he finds Shadow Mabes just on the ground. So he puts his shield on, he goes over to investigate when suddenly somebody attacks him Then cutting around, we see that the Harkonnens have uh, followed through on a invasion attack, an ambush, a full-on takeover of Arrakis. They've enlisted several of the Emperor's personal guard, three battalions, which cost the Baron a lot of money because these fighters are seen as the greatest fighters in the world, and they decide that they're going to take over and end House Atreides' rule and just end House Atreides in general. 
Yeah. And the fight that ensues is spectacular. Oh, it's crazy. And the best part is, in the book, it just kind of goes, and a massive battle happened. And you don't really get the details of it. And the book just kind of rushes past it. It does. And doesn't go into the detail of the destruction of this battle. And the movie, being a movie, is able to show off what that battle looked like. And it is spectacular. The explosions are amazing. The fact that these shields show these weapons that are designed to puncture shields. One of the giant weapons has a bomb dropped on it. And you see the explosive lower itself down, blow up within the shield, see the shield fall, fail, and see the explosion then warp out of what was the shape of the shield. And it's just an amazing display of visual effects and the physics behind such an explosion. Oh, it was so well shown. Almost, I feel like almost better than how the book describes it because you're right. The book does kind of just be like, and this happens and this happens. (laughs) And it doesn't give you time to really like even visualize it in your mind because you're onto the next thing so quickly. So the movie does a good job of taking that and slowing it down. Yeah. From here then we see who attacked the Duke and it turns out it was Yue, the family doctor. Now, in the book, Yue gets several different scenes interacting with different characters, and you get to really meet him and know him as a character and kind of start to like him. I I was a little suspicious of him based off of how he was interacting with different characters in the book, but his betrayal still felt very shocking and very sudden. In the movie, it comes out of nowhere. I agree. I think in, in the movie, Yue doesn't have enough, like, importance to make it that crazy of a thing to happen. In the book, Yue has a lot more, so it does make it a little more shocking that he stabs the Duke almost literally in the back. Yue, seeing the Harkonnens come along and coming down the hall, removes one of the Duke's teeth and replaces it with a poison pill that when bit down on will release a poison vapor good enough to kill anybody in the room. And the whole reason for this is that Yue betrayed the Duke That way he can uh, see his wife again, and the Duke having this poison pill will allow him to kill the Baron in this process. So Yue's kind of hoping to see his wife, and then hopefully through redemption also kill the Baron. Yeah. And upon receiving the Duke, the Baron returns Yue to his wife by just killing him too. Because it turns out Baron killed his wife, and the Baron's just an evil guy doing evil things, so of course he killed him. The beginning of the scene when he's eating reminds me so much of that scene from Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, that everybody hates. It's literally <laughs> almost worse than that scene. I hated this scene yeah. so much. All the sounds in it were so gross. I was just like, eh, the whole time. Oh, with what I was saying, sound design wise. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's a good thing because it's a testament to the character that the Baron is. I just hated it. I hated it so much. I hate the scene in Lord of the yep. Rings too. I cannot stand it. But it's a testament to those characters. So I'm glad that it happened, even though I hated it myself. Yes. Um, but then in that scene, the Baron goes up to the Duke and almost starts like bragging in the Duke's face in a way. Mm-hmm. Just kind of just like... being evil. Yeah, just being evil. And so the Duke is paralyzed because of the dart that was shot into his back. So he, the Baron has stripped him of all of his clothes just to further humiliate him as best as he can because evil dude, that's what evil dudes do. And... Very slowly, the Duke is starting to regain some feeling, regain a little bit of motion, not enough to really like swing out with his arm or anything, but he can start to form words. He can start to move his mouth a little bit. And 
the Duke is able to bite down on this fake tooth and release poison out of his mouth, killing himself in the process and everyone in the room, including the Baron. The Baron really almost dies in this scene. The only reason he is even remotely alive after this is because right before he goes up into the Duke's face, he activates a shield of his own just as a precaution. And as soon as the gas is released, he flies as far away from it as he can in the room. He is still hit with it, but the shield is really what saves him, I feel like, in that moment. Oh, yeah. No, he is brought right to the brink of death. And later on, we have this scene between the Baron in his almost lifeless state. And we see him with his nephew, Rabin, who is the character played by Dave Bautista in this movie. And you just see how badly hurt the Baron was in this scene while they're discussing what to further do to take back Arrakis. And at the same time as this whole attack on Arrakis is happening. Paul and Jessica are being taken out into the desert to be killed because that's what the Baron wanted to have happen to both of them. That way the entire Atreides line is just gone. That was the Baron's plan. The Reverend Mother spoke with the Baron earlier and said that you can, you know, we know that you're going to attack the Atreides house. You can't kill Lady Jessica or her son Paul because they are important to us and our mission. And while the Baron agrees, he goes right against the orders and has them not killed, but tells, you know, his people to just leave them out in the desert. Yeah. Let the desert deal with them. So they won't, he won't directly have killed them. Yeah. That way, if they're ever interrogated, they will not be lying when they say, I did not kill him. Correct. So that happens. Which they is get captured. even fun. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, even with him telling his people, you know, just leave them in the desert, that way you can't be held accountable. He even plans to kill off his own people. That way it can not be traced back to him whatsoever. Yeah, it's very well thought out. The Baron's a very smart man. Yeah, and very evil. And very evil. (laughs) Um, This scene in the Ornithopter is actually really cool. It shows more use of the voice between Jessica and Paul. And this is that scene that I was talking about with how the voice is truly terrifying. Yeah. Because Paul kind of hones in his ability to use the voice, but Jessica is a master at it. Mm -hmm. And once she has her gag moved, she uses the voice to just murder through these people without laying a finger on them. Yeah, she just tells one of them to kill another one, and he does, just because she said it using the voice. And it's crazy. I'm like, that's... I don't like that. <laughs> that's the bad Jessica from the books. Yes, that's the Jessica that I wish we saw more of in the movie. Yeah, from here we find Duncan Idaho through a beacon. They meet up with light kinds and go to an old terraforming base on the planet. Because the original plan for Arrakis was to terraform it from a desert planet into a habitable colonized planet. You know, let the planet grow and be a place for population to grow. But once they discovered the spice, they canceled all all plans for that and that really is still like like kind's plan that's what kind's overall really would love to have happen is to terraform this planet and make it habitable again right and kind's then brings in some of the fremen people and we start to meet the fremen and start to see that the fremen and kind's kind of have this other kind of connection where it almost seems like kind's is more involved with the fremen than initially let on and we found out through the book that Light kind is basically in charge of the Fremen. Yeah, at least that faction of the Fremen, yes. Yeah, and so the Fremen share some food and drink with Paul, Jessica, and Duncan Idaho, and they kind of see this whole factory. 
And this is probably one of my favorite memories from seeing a movie recently is once they're all talking and they kind of figure out what's going on, the Harkonnen's forces have caught up with them, especially with the Sardaukar. And while the Fremen know that they're coming, the Fremen hide underneath the sand and it gets very quiet. And the Sardaukar come lowering into this open area in the, what is it, research laboratory? Yeah. And when I saw the movie, this scene is quiet. It is very quiet. And there was not a sound in the theater. And I was in a completely full theater and nobody made any noise. And these characters were coming from the ceiling and lightly went into the sand. And you heard the little crunch of sand as their feet landed. And then bursts of sand as the Fremen jumped up and attacked them. And the sound quality in this moment, I have goosebumps now like talking about it because it was <laughs> such a cool moment to experience in a movie theater. Yeah. Because, you know, normally someone's crinkling popcorn or, mm-hmm. or you know, taking a drink or moving or in their seat or, you know, maybe someone's talking or whispering. No, it was dead silent. And it was dead silent both times that I saw the movie in this exact moment. That's and awesome. It makes me so happy. It was that is so cool truly incredible i've been wanting to talk about this movie specifically to talk about that experience because that oh goosebumps love it that moment was probably my favorite out of the entire movie now unfortunately directly after that we see duncan idaho fighting off these forces oh dude that's such a cool fight it's a really cool fight and you kind of allude to it by saying unfortunately because yes it is unfortunate duncan idaho does not make it out of that fight but not without oh no, not, not without, without putting up, putting fight, up the best fight that anyone could put up. And not only that, but at this point, since they're in the research laboratory, they're able to use shield, and you get to really see what hand-to-hand combat with these swords and knives looks like using shields and not being able to use fast attacks to kill your enemies, but slow push through the shields in fast motions in between. And it's such a unique way of fighting that doesn't exist in what we know sword fighting to be. Yeah. And they do a spectacular job at showing it. So this fight was one of the ones I was the most excited to see on a movie screen because Duncan Idaho was the weapons master of the Atreides house. He was the one who would train other soldiers. He was the one who initially was training Paul before he was sent on assignment to Arrakis and Gurney Halleck kind of took that over. So I was really excited to just see Duncan Idaho fight. And I knew that this fight was going to yeah. happen. So I was excited to see the choreography that they came up with and just see how much of a fight he could put up. And man, he put up a fight. So it was really cool to watch that. Very sad to see the end of it, but very cool to watch it. And I think casting Jason Momoa for this role worked really well. And like you were saying, they kind of made Duncan Idaho and Paul's relationship a little bit closer than it is in the books. But with how they did it as a part one movie, it makes this scene so much more sad. It does. It makes the death a lot more impactful. Yeah. So... What happens next is they try to escape because Duncan Idaho has stalled them long enough. So Paul and Jessica get to this ornithopter and they take off and kind of just like go fly directly into this sandstorm. It's the safest option. Just make sure you're high enough that you don't destroy yourselves in the process. And they're like, okay, we're going to do that. And Light Kinds goes the other direction and we see Light Kinds take out these hooks. And the Fremen, one thing that they do is they will ride worms. They will ride these worms as a mode of transport. And it's something that hasn't happened yet for me in the book. And it's something that we haven't actually seen happen yet in the movie. But I know that that's what this was alluding to when Kynes pulled out these hooks. And this is a difference from the book as well, but also one that I am totally okay with. 
the way that Kynes dies in this movie. Yes. Was Kynes really, dies in such a better way. Yeah. Was also really impactful. In the book, Kynes dies in a kind of weird way. Kynes almost dies of like heat exhaustion more than anything. Here, though, Kynes dies almost like just trying to save Jessica and Paul and get them out, essentially. So the soldiers catch up to Kynes, and Kynes is trying to escape by riding a worm. So Kynes puts what's called a thumper in the ground, which is used to attract worms to that spot. It just causes a steady beat in the ground. So the Fremen use those to attract worms to specific places. And as this is happening, one of the soldiers comes up behind Kynes and just stabs a knife right through her and takes her down. But Kynes takes these soldiers with her because she just starts pounding the ground getting this worm to come straight to where they all are. And this worm just devours all of them. So the way that Kynes is taken out in this movie, I think is really, really cool. If anyone's going to die in a cool way, this is a really cool way to die. Yeah. And while it's sad that Kynes dies in the book with how it's handled in the movie, way more impactful. Yeah. So then Paul and Jessica are flying into the storm and it would be doing injustice to this movie to try and explain just how insane flying through this storm is. So I think we should just leave it there and cut to after the storm because you, you just need to see this. It, yeah. it is. Words we won't be able to do injustice. So suspenseful. yeah, it, it's just, it's amazing. Go watch it. <laughs> but after that, the ornithopter is kind of destroyed, but they make it out alive. They're okay. They get out of the thopter and they need to start traveling through the sand in order to make it to solid land where they can actually like camp and be safe because there's no worms on solid land. They only live in the sand. So they need to get out of the sand. So they start moving like the Fremen would through the sand and they're making their way in a direction. It's working well for them. It is working really well for them until they step on something called drum sand. And drum sand basically is just when you step on it, it sounds like a drum. And because worms are attracted to rhythms and specific sounds, drum sand is going to attract a worm. So they hit the drum sand and they're like, run. And they just immediately start sprinting for this solid ground that they can get to. And the fact that this drum sound is in line with someone running Mm -hmm. is such a perfect use of a diegetic sound to transition into soundtrack. Yeah. And Hans Zimmer does a fantastic job at increasing the tension in this scene. Yeah, he did a really good job with that. The note that I have about this was it made me so uneasy. And the biggest thing it made me uneasy was once they reached the solid land, this worm literally comes out of the ground. Like it's oh, and just, you used to get to see the actual scale of this thing. And yeah. it is a towering column of just pure monster reaching up into the sky. Absolutely insane. And it's like ready to devour Paul. And as it's coming down, though, It gets distracted by a pulsating thump, which, you know, pulls its direction off. And we realize that that was a diversion of the worm by a thumper by the Fremen that they run into on this rock. So on this rock, they start making their way up it to get to a safer spot. And they end up being surrounded by a group of Fremen led by Stilgard, who is the leader of what they call a Seich, which is like just a specific group of Fremen, like a little village almost. It's like a like a city. Yeah. Stilgar starts talking to them. They're like, what are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you here? This is our land. You shouldn't be here. 
and Jessica and Paul get into like battle mode essentially. And these Fremen kind of come out and they start to almost fight them. Paul knocks one down, steals his weapon and gets up to this higher ground and kind of like acts like a sniper almost from above. Well, Jessica is on the ground, still kind of conversing with Stilgar, trying to ease the situation using her Bene Gesserit ways of persuasion, not using the voice because that would probably not go well for the other Fremen around that have no weapons trained on her and eventually they get to this kind of standstill and they just talk and she convinces Stilgar that she is this higher being of sorts not like a prophet like Tal is but she is what the Fremen call a Sayadina which is this almost saint-like figure to the Fremen well, it is what the Bene Gesserit set up on Arrakis within the Fremen culture so that Jessica would have an okay time coming into their culture. What was not planned for, though, was that the Fremen really do believe that Paul is their savior. And so it's a mixture of Stilgar thinking that Jessica is this important religious figure, but also that Paul might actually be this savior character that they've been waiting on. Yeah. And the, the rest of the Fremen all kind of ha- shared these beliefs, except for one. Except for one, Jamis is, I want to say he's one of like the higher ups in this Seich of Fremen, but he is not Stilgar. Stilgar has final say, and what Stilgar has said is, they are safe because I trust them, at least until we get back to the Seich, and then we can decide what to do with them. And Jamis completely refuses to believe that Paul is who everybody thinks he is. Yeah. He does not believe Paul is this figure. You know, so Jamis is very against Jessica and Paul going this way. And because Jessica kind of has this figurehead place of Stilgar, it's Jessica's fault that Paul is going along with. So mm-hmm. Jamis can't challenge Jessica, but challenges Jessica's ability to be there. So Jessica needs to have someone to fight for her. Yeah. And Paul volunteers. And throughout the entire movie, we've been getting this image of a knife and blood. And, you know, a knife is very important. Whether or not this knife can cause great harm or not, or cause the death of Paul, is yet to be seen. And I think showing that in this scene of the movie where either Paul is going to live or Paul is going to die. This particular moment also then has to do with if Paul lives, is his horrifying vision of the future of Arrakis and the Fremen being run underneath the Atreides flag, killing and conquering through the galaxy, going to happen or not, all revolving around this knife fight. And it really makes it so that while you have this giant, huge fight with these huge explosions and these spaceships coming in and destroying a city, it's good. The climax of this movie is a knife fight. Yeah. And it works because of how these visions all interact. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really, really cool. One thing we did not mention is after everything's kind of calmed down, we really get to actually meet Chani, who is the character played by Zendaya. She is also a part of this site. Oh, right, right, right. She is in here as well. And she she says uh, she has very few uh, like actual lines as her character in this movie, but one of them just makes me laugh. So I said that Paul, like, scrambles up to this high point with this Fremen weapon and he's kind of like being like this lookout up there while Jessica's down trying to use her manipulation techniques to persuade them to calm everything down. And Chani's just standing there like behind him essentially and she's like, I would have taken you out if you tried anything anyway. And that's like paraphrasing what she (laughs) says, but it just made me laugh. I was like, yeah, that's fair. She definitely knows what she's doing more than he does. 
it reminds me in the same vein as like when the reverend mother is talking and is like you know you are strong paul i hope you live it's it's like that kind of humor this is a very serious movie but they throw in just a few little things like that just to make you be like huh that's funny so i was glad we finally got to meet chani and as soon as paul sees her he's like what that's you're 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 the the one yeah and she's like what are you looking at me like that for and none of those words are said but that's just the vibe you get from their faces when they see each other yep So we have this fight between Jamis and Paul, and this fight takes a lot longer than I think all of the Fremen around were expecting it to, because Paul doesn't want to kill this guy. He doesn't think he has to kill this guy. He's like, I'll get the upper hand, I'll get him to stop, because Trades culture, you're not fighting to the death. You're fighting to yield, at least in what Paul has experienced thus far. But in Fremen culture, when a challenge is made like this, it's a fight to the death. So Jamis is all in, ready to fight to the death. But Jamis cannot lay a finger on Paul. He is able to dodge everything. And he tries to get Jamis to yield multiple, multiple times. In the book, they do a really good job at explaining where the character's motivations are. Mm-hmm. And really showing each, you know, a, a knife fight might only be a couple of strokes. But within those moments, you get to see a character noticing, oh, he moved his left foot slightly to the back and turned. He's going to go for a strike off to the right. I can see him wincing in his right eye. He seems to be distracted, so he might try and dodge left instead of right. And really going into the characters mentally dissecting their opponent. And I think, like we've said several times before, the translation between book and movie, while it's a different medium, is really well done. Yeah. So... All of the Fremen that are watching this fight and Jamis, they're all like, why is he just toying with him? Why is he doing this? That's rude. That's disrespectful. That is against everything that we believe. And Jessica just says to Stilgar, because Stilgar asks her, he's like, is he just messing with us? And she's like, Paul's never killed anyone. He definitely doesn't want to right now. And so I think that kind of opened Stilgar's eyes even more so to Paul and the kind of person that Paul is. Granted, Paul kind of has this realization of, I don't have a choice here. It's going to be either me or Jamis. So Paul ends up winning this fight. He does end up killing Jamis. And what the Fremen do in that moment is they like gather around Jamis and they like pick him up and they take him and they wrap him up because they don't want anything to happen to him and water is super important. And for all the things that we've been praising the movie with, things that they got right, one scene that I was kind of looking forward to, but they didn't do, or at least I missed it if they did, is the Fremen are very taken back when Paul cries over killing Jamis. Because water is such a precious resource that even crying is losing, you know, water. It's losing moisture. It's giving up your water. And giving up your water for someone that you have killed is seen as such a... a uh, sign of respect. And it is a very big thing to the Fremen and their culture. And one of the reasons why they really take Paul in. And I was surprised that they didn't include that idea in the movie. Yeah, I don't remember that either. So I don't think they did, but you make a good point there. One of the things that I really wanted to see was I really, well, one, I really wanted to see the site, which we didn't get to see in the movie because this whole fight scene happens in a different place in the movie than it does in the book. In the book, they go back to the site that Stilgar is in charge of, and they have more conversation. We get to see um, some conversation and growth between Paul and Chani 
as well as between Jessica and Stilgar and just seeing like how those relationships form slowly in the book. We don't get to see that really in the movie yet. I'm assuming we'll see more of that in part two, but that's just something that I was looking forward to seeing and was not a part of the end of this movie either because they decided to go the route of having this happen before that happens. Yeah. And that kind of ends part one. It just ends very abruptly in that Paul and Jessica go with the Fremen into the desert. Yeah, I am excited to see what part two brings. I'm also really excited to start reading the second half of this book because I have not read it since I saw the movie because I didn't want to like really confuse myself with events that happen later on in the book versus what happened in this movie and kind of get them all mixed up. So I decided I'd just wait until after we chatted about it. And it's a good thing that you waited because now you have a lot of time to read as part two doesn't come out until October 2023. Yep, I got a little bit of time, which is great. Yeah. (laughs) I saw an article going around that there might not just be a part two, but there might also be a part three. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. This might actually be a trilogy versus two. Now, granted, within the Book of Dune, there are three different small books that make up the full novel. Dune Part 1, the movie, ends at about the halfway point of Book 2. So it makes sense to just do a Part 1, Part 2. If they were to do a Part 3, I'm wondering if that would go into the second Book of Dune. Because Dune as a series is several books long. I think it's like nine books or eight books long. Oh, I didn't realize that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a very big series. And it gets very cosmic and very weird. (laughs) Huh. Interesting. So, yeah, it'll be weird to see where they go with this. I'm kind of hoping that they stick just to the first book, at least for now, mainly because I haven't read the second book yet. But I'm interested to see where they take it. Yeah, definitely. So, John, we've talked about this movie for a very long time, and it sounds like you really enjoyed it. If you had to give it a rating, what would you give it? So... I just want to kind of recap my main critiques on the movie because we've talked about a lot of good. We've talked about some critiques as well. I have four main critiques on this movie after watching it two times. My first one, I feel like overall just some of the scenes feel just like a hair too long. And this isn't something I talked about as we were going through it. But like an example is the scene before they go to Arrakis at the beginning of the movie. And Paul's just looking out over the horizon on Caladan still. And like it has big, really beautiful music and there's lots of musical swells and things are happening. But that's all that's happening. It's just this shot of the horizon and there's still just the horizon. And (laughs) oh, wow, the horizon. And it just I feel like there's a couple scenes that are just a touch longer than they need to be. It's maybe a little artsy. I kind of dig it, but I understand that criticism. And that's in no way a big critique. That's just something I noticed. The second critique is something I did talk about, and it's one of the biggest challenges in how they can get the thoughts of these characters portrayed in a movie. Whether it's through dialogue, facial expressions, whatever, I feel like it happens sometimes, but I do feel like sometimes those thoughts were lost and something that we didn't necessarily get that in the book, you do get those thoughts. And that's just movie translation. That's hard to do. So that's okay. I think they did a very good job with that overall. Another one I talked about is Jessica's character. Jessica has a very big prominent part in the book. Granted, her part's pretty important in the movie as well, but I feel like her character is stronger than what they presented to us, the viewer, in the movie. And the last one, we talked about this kind of before we actually recorded, and if you hadn't read the book and you went to see the movie the movie would be kind of hard to follow. Having that general 
backstory of the world that is built is really helpful. So that's just one little thing. I think they could have done a better job trying to explain the world that they're in. It's just such a vastly different environment than what we know. So it's hard to follow unless you kind of have that background knowledge already. Aside from that, I thought it was awesome. Like I said, I really enjoyed it the second time through a lot more than the first time because I was more prepared for it, I think. I would give this movie a four out of five. I really can't wait to see what part two brings. I think depending on part two, the rating for this movie could change because I feel like they really will just be an item because how this movie ends, it's just very incomplete. And that's the point because it is a part one. It's in the title part one. So it's not a movie on its own. It really does, I feel like, rely on the next movie as well. So I can't wait to see what dots they connect if they have all the things that we've talked about that we think are missing that we would like to see. And I would definitely recommend reading the book first, though, if you're going to see this movie and you haven't. If you have seen it, still read the book. The book's awesome. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I would give it a four. That's fair. So if they had broken this movie down and kept it the same length, but included all those details that we wanted, it would have ended probably around the same time that book one ends in the movie. And this would be a trilogy rather than a part one, part two. It might still be a trilogy. It might not. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds. But assuming it's still just a part one, part two broken book in half, part one would have ended right after the Harkonnen attack with Paul having a spice induced panic attack where he's seeing the future and seeing all these terrible things as he's trying to survive with his mom in a tent. And that would have been the end of the movie. And I think that by continuing on showing Paul kind of already somewhat knowing how to live in the desert and showing the fight with Jamas, it kind of makes the movie feel even bigger. Yeah. And even though it jumps from thing to thing very fast and it doesn't include some of the scenes that we wanted, like the scenes with UA or the the dinner scene where you kind of get to see what the politics of the world look like outside of just the family units. I think we will see those in some sort of extended cut. I think that exists out there. You know, it's some sort of long form content of this story. And like John said, definitely go read the book if you haven't. It's not an easy read, but it's an incredible read. It's very good. And that being said, though, even though it's a part one and you have to judge it by itself with how this movie sounds and with how this movie looks, I I can't do anything but give it a five. It is it has probably been one of my favorite movies I've seen in theaters all year. Hey, that's awesome. That's super cool. I think the reason why I gave it a four instead is because if I'm going to give it a five, it's going to be a movie that like I could watch literally any time. That's fair. And for this movie, I just feel like I need to be like mentally prepared. Oh, no, it's it's definitely <laughs> and that's kind of where I'm at. It's definitely a movie that I would need to be in the right mindset to watch. I I mean, I think it's fully deserving of a five. Um, that's just our own personal tastes. So I think yep. that's super cool. Well, awesome. If you made it through that whole thing and enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to rate us five stars on whatever podcast listening place you'd like to use. But if you didn't enjoy what you heard today, I would still maybe go give us those five stars because, you know, we can always throw a thumper right near you and have a worm come around. Yeah, feed him to the worms. Yeah. (laughs) But either way, there are new episodes of Other Brothers Podcast every Tuesday. If you have any suggestions for what you think we should review next, you can let us know on Twitter at Other Bros Pod. And most importantly, tell your friends about us. I've been John. And I've been Colin. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Other Brothers Podcast, and we'll see you guys next time.